you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 504 with my guest Jamila Jamil. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. A place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. More like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show and social media handles are MentalPod. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of fires in the uh, in the area right now. I've never seen a weather report that instead of the cloudy, it just says smoke. It's oh, it it between this and the pandemic, it it just feels so surreal. I don't know if I can describe it outside what it looks like. It's actually sunny, but I suppose it looks like when there's an eclipse where it should be brighter out, but it's not. It's just it's really eerie. California's getting creepy. California's becoming like a, a, a creepy old man. <laughs> Still playing Civ Five addictively. I can't... I think you guys know that feeling when you're like, you're not really going to go do that again, are you? Yep. Yep. I'm going to go play the same game. I've been playing for four hours every day for the last uh, two months. But I don't know, some about it is soothing. I suppose it's the, the sense of control. We've got a couple of heavy surveys uh, towards the end of the show, uh, some shame and secret surveys. Uh, but I want to kick, uh, kick things off with a happy moment filled out by Kathy and... Is that the one I want to start with? Yes. She writes, I was looking for a place to turn around, so I turned off the highway onto a dirt road. Little did I know, 
There was nowhere to turn around until I was deep into the state forest, and after I turned around, I took a wrong turn because I have a terrible sense of direction. I got very, very lost, taking more wrong turns and driving my mother's Prius off-road. Eventually, I barely made it through a puddle before being faced with a mud patch equivalent to something they'd send you into on a school camp, and I knew I had to give in. My own stubbornness had got me stranded in the middle of nowhere because I desperately wanted to sort the issue out myself. At first, I called emergency services, who told me to call a towing company in a tone that suggested I was the stupidest person in the world. And then parentheses, probably true at that point. So I called the towing company. Of course, I was freaking out. My chest was burning hot with shame as I spoke to the guy from the company. But he was very calm and considerate. Once it was confirmed that they knew my location and were sending someone, I set up camp in the boot of mum's car and wait. I don't think there's any question you're Australian or English. Uh, and for those of you uh, that don't know, boot is the trunk of the car. Or it's a car that has four legs and very sassy boots. Uh, my phone was down to 40%, so all I could really do was wait in the relative silence of the bushland I was stuck in. I, I'm going to say it's Australia. Usually in a situation like this, I would have cried and just had a general self-hate session. It makes sense. I don't know if you've ever been to the United Nations when they have a general self-hate session, but oh, is it tense. The translators, <laughs> I don't know how to finish that. I'd got myself into quite the pickle, and I was extremely underprepared. I'd been camping a lot through my childhood, but never really became the outdoorsy type. Instead, I looked at the trees and listened to the birds while reminding myself that the car was not broken, I was safe and unharmed, and help was on the way. I hadn't told anyone what had happened yet, especially not my mother. I didn't need anyone else's scorn. The guy who turned up and parentheses, in one of the biggest tow trucks I'd ever seen, was really, really friendly, and I think that's what makes it a happy memory. I still remember the feeling of elation and lightness I felt when I saw the truck reversing down the track towards me. I'm not into men, but I could have kissed him. I was so happy to see someone who could get me out of this situation safely. In the end, it's quite childish. I had a great time riding up in the truck through the bush. It was much more fun when I wasn't scared, the car was going to break. And he even agreed to be one of my interview slash photo subjects for my journalism assignment. He was even nice enough to drive me all the way into town instead of dropping me off on the side of the road like the guy on his phone had said. I had not planned for my day to go so sideways, but in the end, it turned out to be a good bit of excitement. I wasn't actually sure if this belonged in awfulsome or happy moments, but overall, I have generally good memories. I'm extremely proud of myself for not spiraling in my shame and embarrassment, something that had been very common throughout my childhood due to the inner need to be perfect to avoid being abandoned. It proved that the therapy I'd been doing was working. Ah, love it. Love it. Thank you for that. Actually, this would be a good time to uh, give a plug to uh, BetterHelp.com, online therapy. Uh, 
been doing it for a couple of years. There's so many issues that I've worked through with my therapist, not that I'm done with them uh, by any means. We've done a little bit of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy because the catastrophizing part of my brain will take any situation and extrapolate it out to the what is the worst thing that could happen and then just hold on to that like a badger with a piece of meat. And one of the things that Donna, my therapist, helps me remember is to ask myself, what are the facts on the ground? And just stick with the facts. Just kind of like dragnet, the dragnet of of therapy. If you are interested in trying online therapy, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. Then just fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a counselor if they feel that they have one that's a good fit for you. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. I mean, you need to be over 18. Otherwise, if you're between 13 and 17, they'll send you to teencounseling.com and get you get you started there. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mary Toweling Bathrobe. Sudden, I just had the feeling that I've read this on a previous survey, but I don't think so. So I'm going to read it at the risk of doing it redundantly. And she writes, my cat died yesterday as I was crying with snot running down my nose. I realized that I was actually feeling the grief instead of numbing it out entirely as I had done for the, for most of the 30 years I've been on this planet. Actually, 10 years before that, she was on another planet and holy shit, you think Uber takes a long time. Finally, after months of therapy, I could feel myself beginning to thaw. I could feel my cat's spirit cheering me on as I cackled with laughter through my tears, feeling the progress I'd been making recently, despite still feeling awfully sorry that my cat had passed away. I felt fragile and alive. Mainly, I was grateful to feel. Oh, I love that. That is, that is one of the things that doesn't really get talked about that much is numbness. You know, we talk about depression a lot. We talk about anxiety a lot. But, oh, that void where you just feel like, like you're in a snow globe and the rest of the world is outside it carrying on. This is from the love survey filled out by Stoney the Tiger. And they write, I love getting high and realizing that music is the best thing in the entire world. I love being high outside with the sun on my face, listening to music. Normally, I don't romanticize getting drunk or high. You know, I've been sober 17 years. But that one, that made me kind of wish that I could still get high. Because that is a great feeling. Being out in nature, hearing music. The problem for addicts like me is after that initial euphoria wears off and you got to deal with the fogginess and the fact that you haven't done anything on your to-do list. That's that's the shit that brought me to my knees. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Rachel and about her PTSD. She writes, with CP, with CP, I think she spelled it wrong, CP. CPTSD. Wow. Wow. No, she didn't spell it wrong. There is a constant sense of not belonging anywhere mixed with the desire to be seen just so you can hide again. The sense of never 
being correct or valid doesn't go away, and the slightest thing set it off, which makes the urge to actually sink into not feeling real all the more common. That's such a good one. Uh, and CPTS, CP, PTSD. CPTSD, there I'm going to say it 10 times. It stands for complex PTSD, which uh, in my non-professional opinion would be described as a series of, instead of a single event, it's the accumulation of uh, a lot of events which I think can be a real motherfucker when you're trying to process it because you say to yourself, well, I'm, you know, I never really experienced anything. And then you get into therapy and they point out that uh, you actually are experiencing a wound by a, a thousand cuts. And uh, one more survey before we get to the interview with Jamila. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Ace. And she writes, I was incredibly depressed and contemplating suicide around grade three to four. Oh, my mother is a narcissist, abusive and neglectful. However, this story is how she tried to cheer me up. One day, I begged her to let me stay home from school as I was being bullied by everyone, but especially two girls in my class. The teachers had, in their great wisdom, moved my desk in between the two bullies. One morning, I was having full-on hysterics, ugly crying, screaming, and begging not to go to school. This wasn't something new as I would fake being sick to get out of going and had asked to switch schools. My mom sent me to school anyways. I remember sitting slouched down in my seat between these two girls, head on desk during the middle of a lesson. All of a sudden, there's a commotion at the door, and in walks a clown with a basket of balloons. There's confusion about where this clown is supposed to go, since the teachers assumed it was for a much younger kid with the same name as me. Also, it's nobody's birthday. This clown loudly reads out to the entire class a message, I can't remember it directly, from my mom saying how, quote, she knows I'm having a tough time at school and that I'll be okay and that she loves me. Oh my God. The clown was basically reading out my pain in front of the kids who tortured me. I ended up getting to keep the balloons at my desk in a tiny basket of really cheap hard candy. What's worse, I ended up sharing the candy with the other students, including the kids that bullied me. I remember this being a, quote, good day at school as my friends wanted the candy and I felt that my mom cared, even though at the time it was incredibly horrible and embarrassing. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world, everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure and i was being a dick to everybody we are social beings and the only way you're going to get it out is to cry we need to be with people i grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies maybe listen thanks for coming in (laughs) 
I am here with Jamila Jamil. So many things to, to talk about. Um, you are an advocate for body image issues, particularly um, how it's portrayed in the media, how corporations profit off of it. You have personal issues. You've struggled with anorexia since you were 11 or 12. Um, you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Am I pronouncing or is it Ehlers? It's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Oh, and I should also mention you have a podcast. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. So I have a mental health podcast called I Weigh with Jamila Jamel. It's called I Weigh because that is the name of my social movement that changes the way that we value ourselves and teaches us how to look inside rather than outside of ourselves for our worth. But it has expanded into this huge conversation around shame and inclusion and mental health. And so on this podcast, I get some of the smartest and funniest and most interesting people to come and teach me about their different experiences and their different journeys through making mistakes or going through immense mental health issues to come to where they are now. Those are such important topics. Um... Can can we start with you giving us some snapshots of growing up, what the environment was like uh, in your in your house? You were raised in Britain. I was raised in Britain and Spain and Pakistan, and I'd say I spent most of my time as a child in London. And I came from a family that had no money. Uh, it was full of severely mentally ill people. So you know, kind of range from severe manic depression to uh, bipolar, to suicidal ideation, to schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, uh, rampant OCD, the kind that just completely wrecks your life. And so I, I was raised caring for those people because I was the only person in my entire family and even a lot of my extended family who wasn't yet mentally ill. So I grew up with a very firm understanding of mental illness and that armed me to be ready when it finally found me, which invariably it would if you grow up in that kind of household. Um, we, didn't, uh, we didn't stay in one place very long because we could never meet the rent. So we used to get kicked out a lot. I slept on a lot of floors of relatives and friends. And I moved 13 times before the age of 11. Wow. And so it was a bit of a disjointed upbringing. And I was lucky to get a full scholarship to a very fancy secondary school as a kid where then I was able to find a, a good education and I had it fully paid for. They paid for my food, my travel, my lunch, everything. So I fell on better times. What did it feel like in that fancy secondary school coming from where you came from? Was it, was it ever uh, a weapon that was used against you for judgment? Yeah. Often, you know, it was a school full of the wealthiest kids in England, uh, some of them. And so I, you know, I think I made myself sound posher than I was, <laughs> uh, which has had an impact on my accent just because I was like, well, you can't be chubby and Pakistani and poor. You're going to have to, well, something has to give. So you're just going to have to sound rich. And I know, uh, you know, people didn't used to come over to my house. So, you know. What would you, what would you have sounded like if you hadn't? put on the upper class? Probably like a bit more South London because we'd grown up in South London and Camden. So there'd just be like less pronunciation. That's gotcha. a, lot, it's a rounder type of accent. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I don't. <laughs> Very Eliza Doolittle vibe. If you if you could go back in a in a time machine and talk to little you at any age, what age would you pick, and what would you say to yourself? Oh, I'd pick the day that I was put on a weighing scale in front of my entire class, uh, where my school decided to weigh all of us in front of each other. And that was the day that I realized that my weight was a thing that was societally and culturally important, um, as I was the heaviest girl in the class. And so I was heavily bullied over that. And I wish I could take her and grab her and tell her not to ingest the information that her worth lies in a number or a scale. I would have urged her to understand that her worth is on the inside because that moment catapulted me into what would be almost 20 years of body dysmorphia and an eating disorder and I wish I if I could go back and erase any day I think it, it might be that one because for all of the abuse or trauma I've suffered that has been the one where the impact of it has haunted me the most it's taken the most hours out of my life do you, do you remember what you thought or felt in that moment? Yeah, I was stunned because I didn't understand why everyone was laughing, um, pointing at me and treating me as though I'd done something wrong because, you know, up until then I was such an innocent kid. I feel so bad for kids nowadays because they're so aware of their image from such a young age and, you know, their image is put across the internet. I grew up in such an innocent time where, you know, I was super proud of having a big tummy and I used to eat more so I could try and get it to become bigger and I used to push it out as a small child I didn't think there was anything wrong with my body I didn't think my body was important I just thought my mind was important and to have this sudden realization that I only deserve respect if I only take up a little amount of space just wrecked my confidence it was just like it hit me like an asteroid because I I had no idea that this was an important thing and then it became the overarching most important thing in my life and so how did you change how you lived and looked at yourself after that? Well, I mean, it probably didn't help. I went home to my family and told them about it and then told them how much I weighed. And I'd never been weighed before. And they were also horrified to hear how much I weighed. And so no one offered me a reassuring word. They just put me on a crazy diet that would lead me to, you know, just all kinds of crash diets, fad diets. No one in my family was very educated about nutrition or really anything else. And so it kind of led me down quite a mad, slippery slope. They probably just wanted you to fit in and feel exactly accepted. They, yeah, they, exactly. They wanted me to feel to, well, exactly. They wanted me to fit in, but they also, you know, I think had their own issues around fat phobia, as many people's parents do. You know, that we don't just get it from magazines; we get it from our culture and from our environment. And so I think it was just all around me. I had no escape from thinking that a woman had to be very thin to be acceptable. Was that true in Pakistan as well? I don't think so. I think in Pakistan, women are, you know, seen as wealthy if they look like they have more meat on their bones. Mm. They look at being very, very thin as a sign of poverty. So that's its own like gross form of hierarchy where, mm. you know, you still body shame, but it just happens in the reverse. You know, I know that there are people in different parts of Africa and India and Pakistan who are given chicken fat hormones <laughs> by their families because it is a sign of abundance to be big. It's as if you have too much food to eat. So it's a sign of beauty and wealth. Talk about Ehlers-Danlos. 
called A-list Amos syndrome, but many people call it EDS because it's a fucking mouthful. Um, it is a collagen disorder where we don't produce enough collagen or really much collagen at all. And our collagen is this vital part of every single cell in your body. It's a it's a kind of bonding agent almost. You know, it's what keeps your cells together. It's what helps you heal when you get hurt. Um, it's what keeps your joints in place. And so when you have a lack of it, it means you dislocate all the time, you fall over all the time, your cuts barely ever heal. So your infection rate is much higher. You are covered in scars. Um, you have a lot of, often a lot of joint problems, heart problems. It really does impact every, your teeth are bad. Like it impacts every single part of your existence every single day. You wake up in pain, you go to sleep swollen and in pain. But you present as a perfectly healthy person. So on the outside, you would not be able to see other than when we're in crutches, you can't see that we have anything wrong with us at all. So we are one of the more gaslit uh, communities. And also there just isn't that much funding in A-list animal syndrome. So a lot of people don't even know they have it. They're just walking around wondering why they're covered in bruises. I, I would imagine there are people that try to suggest to you that it's a result of your mental state and that if you can just change your mental state, it will go away. Almost like people that, that tell you, you need to pray more. I know. Or, or am I wrong? Mostly people just don't think it's real because they haven't heard of it, which is truly the height of ignorance. Um, mm. Or they doubt you because you look well. And we're so used to having one version in our head of what a disability looks like. And so we don't understand that disabilities come in all kinds of various forms and that people don't always outwardly present how they feel because they don't want to be treated differently or because they don't want to lose work. Had I come out swinging being like, oh, I made a sandwich from all these different things that happened to me um, before I became well known, I may not have gotten the jobs that I did. Mm. So I now I'm in a position of power where I can say these things and hopefully still work. There's some things I just can't do anyway, like action movies, but I, uh, I had to wait until, until now, but I'm very lucky. Most people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome get diagnosed much later in life because doctors are still so ignorant about it. I was diagnosed at nine years old because I, I, I was told I needed my shoulder and my hip replaced, which is unbelievably young to need that. Yeah. Um, but my uh, joints were, there was too much friction on my joints. And so a doctor at that hospital happened to be the kind of leading expert on Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. His name's Rodney Graham. And he diagnosed me and became my personal physician for the next 20 years. So because I had him behind me, no doctor really doubted me. But very few people are that lucky. I'm actually yeah. in textbooks about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Really? Pictures of me at nine years old with them showing like how stretchy my skin is, how hypermobile I am, uh, all my kind of medical records. They're all uh, logged in medical history. <laughs> What might people best know you from? And think, being, oh, sorry, go on. I was just saying being in the public eye. I think people would probably most know me from the good place, uh, which means sometimes I guess when they then learn about my activism, they think I am genuinely Tahani from the good place. And therefore I think that's where some people's skepticism comes. But I think I'd say that this globally loved, wonderful show is where I'm very lucky to be known from. The good place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What fucks with you the most on a daily basis? Injustice. It's just everywhere. It's so rampant. And I can't believe how selfish the privileged are when it comes to 
how much more we could do, how much more we could learn. You know, I'm a fallible person. I make mistakes. I have, uh, I certainly have blind spots, but I am always working every day to be better and smarter and to do better than I did yesterday. And I feel like I just don't see that, especially from my peers, watching people with so much power and money and influence just take and take and take and never give it back or to be, to watch them be complicit in the systems that hurt kids. That just uh, really fucks me up. It makes me so angry. I feel so disappointed. I guess that's why I rail so hard in this industry to kind of be the anti-celebrity because I just, I can't be complicit. I love this industry and I love working within it. But if we, we have to offset our like toxic footprint. And so that's what I'm trying to do with all of my work. And what would you say is the major thrust of uh, I Way? You, you, you mentioned uh, talking about somebody's value being, you know, internal, uh, I would imagine, i.e., that means their character, how they, how they walk through the world, uh, their empathy, their intelligence, uh, et cetera. Am I putting words in your mouth? No, it's your, you know, it's your contributions to society. It's whatever you've survived, whatever you've overcome. Those are the things that I think are the most important. Those are the things that define who you are in this world. Like what kind of individual are you? And we don't place enough importance on that because materialism has kind of taken over our entire culture and how materialism and consumerism works is that you make people feel like shit about themselves because then you can sell them something to fix what was never really broken. So we make people feel afraid of time as if people can control time or gravity. We make them feel bad about their age, about what they own. Something's always being replaced with a brand shiny new thing. You have to go and buy that brand shiny new thing. As a woman, you must never get older. You must never gain weight. As a man, you must always be big and muscular and hyper, you know, alpha masculine and all that bollocks. We just constantly say, you know, in half of the world, we tell people that they're too dark. And then in the other half of the world, we say, you're too light skinned, you must turn. We just keep people in this perpetual state of dissatisfaction so that they'll continue to consume because happy people don't buy as much. Very true, very true. And I, I feel like this country has really become a, run by corporations. And it it's, its effect is, I think, deeply changing people's mental state, people's emotional state. We so much feeling of hopelessness and powerlessness. You, you know, you, you talked about the subject of of injustice. It just feels like there is no choice. Like there is one party beholden to corporations, and that's just how it's going to be. It's really frustrating. I found myself accidentally having the Freudian slip of referring to America as a company, not a country. <laughs> Nipping out of my mouth. It's truly like it's, it should be changed to America.com. Yeah. And not me looking down on you because England is completely fucked. And we have an absolute dick in office and he doesn't care about the people that do not look like him. He does not care about the poor. He has mishandled COVID horrendously. Uh, but it just comes from a place of, I love America and I despair of the way that young people feel over here because this has the capacity to be such a great country. Yeah. I, I also think we took our empire notes from you guys. <laughs> uh, I mean, truly, we started it. So, yeah. I mean, I'm still Indian and Pakistani. So technically I have no blood on my hands, but yeah, yeah I agree. Talk about the things that... It, people who are struggling to find their value beyond what they look like talk 
talk about questions they can ask themselves, things they can look at, how, how they can change how they view themselves? I think one of the most important pieces of advice I like to give people is just listen to the voice in your head, listen to your inner bully. What is it saying? If it's saying something to you that you would never tolerate being said to someone else that you love, you are not allowed to say those things to yourself. And you must really listen out for that because you know we learn we learn toxic ways of talking to ourselves from the outside, but we do internalize it and we nurture it and grow it in ourselves. And we are capable of extracting that but you just have to find it first and then fight back, defend yourself the way you would defend a friend or a mother or a sister or a lover. I I could not agree more. You know, I always say that if we talk to another person, the way we talk to ourselves, there would be a restraining order against us. hundred percent. I'd knock someone out if uh, they said something to my boyfriend that I catch myself saying to myself. Why do you think it is so hard to be our own best friend? I think it's so hard to be your own best friend because we are soaked in a culture, as I said, of, dis- of, of not allowing people to be content. We have no culture of gratitude because yeah. gratitude doesn't sell. Right. Find the void and find something to fill it. Exactly. It's exactly that. And I think it's really, really vital that people understand that this is a system. This is a whole system and it is, a, it is structured to keep us unhappy. And there is no mental health support system really for everyone in this country or in many countries around the world. There is no capacity of really learning how to deal with mentally ill people. We are just being taken from and taken from. And I hope that this year has finally been a full understanding for us to, to register that the rich don't help. When we're in trouble, the fancy car, the fancy clothes, none of it means shit. All that matters is who you are and the people that you're around and how you will feel. And I think that our idols have fallen this year. and We've seen how tremendously unhelpful and, you know, sometimes downright pathetic politicians and celebrities can be. And we're entering this much healthier eat the rich moment. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that we're starting to register that the actual the actual rock stars are essential workers are healthcare workers, are the people at your grocery store who at the height of the pandemic were still standing and serving people. People fighting uh, injustice despite uh, the risk to their personal safety. I always look at people like that and like they're Martians. Like, how how do you overcome your fear of being killed? Truly. I can't believe how much time and praise. I can't believe that those people haven't been on the covers of magazines for longer than this year instead of, you know, people like me. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's really fantastic. I really welcome this new awakening of our culture to what actually matters. I think our value system has shifted. It makes me feel quite hopeful. Talk about your battles with uh, anorexia, if you're comfortable. Yeah. I don't know why I just mispronounced the word comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I... Well, it started that day at school and then it was fed, no pun intended, by the fashion magazines and the actresses and the era of heroin chic, which was the kind of mainstream culture when I was growing up in the 90s. And everyone was told that in order to be beautiful and to be worthy of respect in our society, you had to look as though you consume nothing other than heroin, that you are emulating a look of famine um, as a glamorous and glorious aesthetic. Uh, So... I don't remember a single girl in my school at the time having a healthy relationship with food. I remember there being a huge queue outside the toilets because everyone was throwing up their lunch. And I watched an entire generation 
having a large portion of their lives and mental health taken away from them just because a bunch of men sold us uh, an impossible beauty ideal. Do you struggle with it today? No, I don't struggle with it today, but that's because I've had the privilege of immense uh, support, but also I have great therapy. So I did um, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. Huge fan of it. Huge fan of it. You just saved my life, changed my life and was so fast and meant that I had to do very little work. And I love anything that means I have to do very little work. Uh, Cognitive behavioral therapy means identifying the trauma and then investigating your own feelings about the trauma and then having the practice set of uh, behaviors in order to counter, like, I don't know, contradict it or meet it. Uh, And so with EMDR, you're just being taught how to well, you're not even being taught anything. They're just helping you extract it entirely from your brain so you're no longer a reactive person. Um, I thought that was fucking great. Uh, I still have body dysmorphia, but I've combated that by just not really looking in the mirror and wearing predominantly just quite baggy, stretchy clothes. (laughs) Um, But I don't starve myself anymore. I have a very healthy relationship to food and my body compared to my past. What did your body feel like entering into EMDR and what did it feel like afterwards? Well, during EMDR, I used to feel like I was going to shit myself because I was having such a visceral emotional reaction in my gut. So I used to literally worry that I was going to shit myself in the um, the session. I didn't. You'll be, you'll all be relieved to know. Um, but my, I just felt better. You know, I was in a fear state all of the time. You know, and and our generation has not evolved to understand that not everything is a saber tooth tiger. You know, we just see yeah. everything dangerous and we don't really know how to develop different levels of stress uh, as to how dangerous something may be so i think online is a good example of how much our phones can stress us out how much social media the news can stress us out it we don't have like a setting for this is news stress or this is online trolling stress we think everything is maximum danger mm. so my cortisol levels my uh my adrenaline was just always on the go and post emdr therapy the way i would describe it is it feels like that moment when you step outside of a nightclub at 4am and it's only when you're outside on the quiet street that you realize how loud it was inside. Yeah. That's exactly what EMDR is like. You can't believe that your mind was so full, so chaotic, so loud. You don't remember how you survived that. And I feel as though I'm walking down a quiet street now. I love that. Isn't it funny how sometimes we can only identify something until we experience the opposite of it? But truly, I mean, that's that's where hindsight comes from. And so I think that's why I always advocate for people to be treated as products of their environment, not just like inherently evil when they make a mistake. We all don't know until we know. That's a good segue to talk about cancel culture. Uh, Talk about cancel culture, if you would. I think a lot of people don't understand exactly what cancel culture or canceling is, right? Especially celebrities. They're so embarrassing the way that they handle it. They've never been criticized before. So, you know, we've always treated uh, celebrities as demigods, maybe actual gods. You know, we've transmitted the worship that we used to have for gods onto just these random human beings who have way too much privilege and recognition for what they do. And so they are so used to being able to do nothing or do the bare minimum or say, practically nothing intelligent and just have everyone applaud and thank them for gracing us with their great words and 
So now that we have entered a moment where we have a little bit kicked them all off their pedestals, they don't know what to do. They're scrambling. They can't believe that their applause has stopped and they're being criticized as they're taking it so badly and personally and crying cancel culture when they don't understand what cancellation means. Cancellation doesn't mean that people just don't like you anymore or they pile onto you. Being cancelled means you have your rights taken away or you have your platform or your job taken away, your voice is removed from society. Being cancelled is what happens to regular people. They lose their job and then they lose their house and their car and maybe their family has to move onto the street. Celebrities very rarely get cancelled. You truly have to rape someone and then not be Roman McPolanski to be actually deplatformed. And so, you know, I, I think it's very funny, the misunderstanding around it. I believe in call out culture. I think it's vital. I think we have to call people to task, hold people to task, sorry. But the culture of cancellation, I think has become, started amazingly, but has become super problematic because we have not learned how to navigate it properly. Now, upon the smallest mistake, everyone piles on and, and, doesn't just want to call that person out. They want that person to be fully removed from our society. That I don't think is healthy uh, because I think it devalues progress. I don't think it's a good example to set for kids. It just says, if you've ever made a mistake, you'll never be forgiven. Because then, then there is, where is their motivation to become better if they will always be cast aside? I think that cancel culture has become a little bit toxic but I think it's very important to understand when you have and haven't been canceled. A celebrity wanting to step back is their choice. If you're choosing to cancel yourself, that's different. Yeah, it, it was kind of like we didn't have any tool to deal with the injustice and the abuse of power that was going on. And we were just handed a sledgehammer, which, you know, in the early phases, hey, we'll take any tool. But the lack of nuance now has really kind of made it uh, unwieldy and, and, and frankly, in many ways, um, cruel. You know, yeah, uh, it can be very cruel. And also, I think the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that people on the Internet are often just externalizing their feelings about themselves or yeah. other people in their lives. You know, and I say this as a former Internet troll is that I was very, very traumatized, very mentally ill, very lonely and unhappy and too afraid to confront the people who were making me unhappy. <laughs> Instead, I used to go and troll strangers on the Internet. What were some of the things you remember saying? I was super slut shamey. I was rude about women. I was rude about celebrities. I, you know, I would write blog posts that were super rude about these people who were within the industry in which I was working. And I just didn't give a fuck because I, I just wanted to, I wanted to shout at someone clearly. And it's because I was a coward. And so now it helps me understand now that I'm on the receiving end sometimes of trolling. I, I know what it is. And I, I mostly just feel sorry for a lot of people, when people are criticizing me, then I take it and I'm grateful for it. But when they're just being cruel for the sake of it, you realize, oh no, someone's being cruel to you at home. It doesn't make it acceptable, but it does just help make it easier for me to digest and understand. Yeah, there's that uh, saying, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the th things that kind of annoys me uh, about cancel culture is people think that by not banishing somebody, to a remote island for the rest of their lives, we're not giving them consequences for, for their behavior, that mm -hmm. there can be consequences and also a dialogue There's and a chance for them to learn and change. Well, I learned and changed. I was a problematic, unfeminist, uh, slut-shaming asshole 
who was incredibly ignorant about most experiences that weren't my own. So I grew up and went off and did some learning and reading and self-investigation and came back and became someone who's dedicated the rest of their life to helping marginalized people and helping teach others and educate others alongside me. So what? there's tremendous hope for people who have been problematic. And I feel like we just don't have hope anymore. What were the things that turned the light bulbs on for you? I think being criticized en masse, that was really helpful and realizing that, oh no, I've got it wrong and people are really hurt and upset. And I think also just becoming less of a mentally ill person. When you are living in your own inner chaos, you can't see straight, you can't think straight. And so you, you fuck up, you make mistakes or you, you misdirect your anger. And I think becoming a more mentally stable person with therapy helped me realize when I'm saying something, where that's actually coming from and decipher whether or not it's actually helpful. Yeah. I love the topic of cancel culture because I just think it's so, so interesting. Mostly I think it's just very important for everyone to investigate our own history. Like we really need to investigate our history. Otherwise, as that expression goes, you know, if we don't examine our previous mistakes, then we are doomed to repeat them. Mm -hmm. I really want whatever group you may be from, investigate your history, investigate what your people did to others and what others have done to you. Le understand the systems of oppression, understand the system of materialism, of capitalism, of commercialism, understand how these businesses work, how advertising works, because I don't think that there's a siren. I'm going to wait for a second to finish that sentence. Is it coming for you? Yeah, I'm being arrested. What have you done? I don't know. It might be the fashion police for this T-shirt that I haven't taken off in five months <laughs> that my boyfriend had to stage an intervention over. <laughs> That's what they should call this, the year of T-shirts. I know, truly. It's why I've finally been able to wear all the shitty T-shirts that people have sent me over the last couple of years. <laughs> I wear them all the time. Um, God, it's really close. It might actually be coming for me. And I think we're going past it. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? I was saying, I think it's really important that we know that ignorance and innocence are not mutually exclusive. And when we are talking to our kids and we are talking to young people around us, or if we are working in schools, we have to understand that the only way we can protect the next generation is to tell them the whole truth so that they are armed with whatever they need to make their own decisions as to how they're going to survive. The worst thing you can do is do what my family did, which was, you know, and lots of our families, which was hide us from the things that they were afraid of us knowing. Mm hmm is that actually I would have been able to navigate all of these things without feeling like I was being fucking blindsided every single minute. If I yeah. known what I was dealing with, I would have been armed with the knowledge to protect myself. And so I guess that's my role as a, you know, the sort of anti-celebrity is just to make sure that I'm telling kids all the things that nobody told me to just warn them because it's so much harder to undo damage than to prevent it. And it's so uh, much easier to lie to somebody when they've been sheltered. Absolutely. It's so easy to lie, some, lie to someone and we're just leaving them so vulnerable. There's no turning back the clock on corruption. It's here. And there's no, no turning back the clock even really on climate change. It's like they've got enough to navigate. The very least we could do is give them the proper tools to be able to defend themselves. Yeah. And, so, you know, as much as that might sound bleak, I actually think it's incredibly hopeful. And I think we need to push for a more transparent world and system. Jamila Jamil. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all of this stuff. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. And kudos to the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure talking to her. 
Um, this episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I'm going to take it out with some some surveys. I don't think I'm going to get through all of these. I've got a pretty big stack. And uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, there's a couple there that are kind of heavy. But uh, I'll give you a heads up before I read those. I know some people have to fast forward through parts of the show that are a little too intense for them but this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself max oh um, before we do that uh i got a favor to ask you guys if you don't subscribe to this podcast i would love it if you did that that helps uh, increase our download numbers and it helps with the advertising and a whole lot of uh, other stuff and it helps me sleep at night how's that how's that for throwing some guilt your way and if you haven't given it a review on iTunes, uh, that would be another great way that you can you can help the podcast. Uh, happy moment filled out by Max. He writes, I was at the beach in the San Diego area, Coronado, while I was in college. I had brought some homework, calculus, which is mind-bending stuff. I was listening to Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland on a Walkman, and there were hundreds of pelicans dive-bombing into the surf just past the waves. It was a mind-blowing moment, but I didn't get much calculus done. I can't remember if I took calculus in college or not. I think I... No. No, I didn't. Organic chemistry, that was the one that crushed my, crushed my brain. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Psycho. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. 
She writes, two days after I turned 15, I was sleeping over at my best friend's house, and her then-boyfriend, turned husband, turned ex-husband, was there as well. In the middle of the night, he started feeling me up while he played with himself. He thought I was sleeping. I rolled over to try and make him stop, thinking, if he thinks I'm waking up, maybe he'll stop. He didn't. Almost 15 years later, and I can still feel his hands on me, just like that night. Sadly, that is an incredibly common experience, and uh, and a lot of people minimize it. And, you know, a violation is a violation. It doesn't matter which body part or, you know, if there was physical pain involved, it's, it's a violation is a violation. She's been emotionally abused. She writes, my dad is a real certified narcissistic asshole. Growing up, I experienced a lot of body shaming. Uh, maybe if you lose some weight, you'll get a boyfriend, was one of the tamer statements. Also, when I was a little girl, I remember him telling people that we knew who my father was, but not my mother. Oh, he's hilarious. I think my favorite one was his continual stories that he would tell me about cheating on my mom, but made me promise not to tell anyone. Talk about power and control. I know a few people in my support group who who had that experience. Um, the knowing that a parent was cheating and not knowing whether or not to tell the other parent. Oh, that just gotta fuck with your head. Any positive experiences with the abusers? It's really awkward because not only is the emotional abuser my dad, but my mom is still married to the guy. Oh. I also cut him out of my life a little over five years ago. Good for you. Visiting for Christmas might be a little awkward this year. Darkest thoughts. My dad was diagnosed with uh, pretty much stage zero colorectal cancer about seven years ago, and he, quote, beat it, which he makes an effort to interject into so many of his conversations. It sounds horrible, but every time I get a call from my mom, I pray that it's her telling me he has cancer and has less less than a month left. Darkest secrets. I slept with my friend, who was married at the time, just because I wanted to. Sob story short, I got pregnant. He confessed to the wife. They're still together. I miscarried and never told him. I'm assuming you didn't tell them that you were pregnant because then they would have wondered where the baby was. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I love fantasizing about gently being woken up from sleeping by a stranger in my room. Oh, fuck. No need to spend thousands on therapy for that one. It's interesting how some people won't make the connection about things until they write it down or, or they share it with someone. And uh, I've experienced that too. It's, it's amazing how our brains will try to hide truths from us. But it's such a relief sometimes when we do uncover those truths and it makes it easier to hate ourselves uh, a little less. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared the abuse with others and some give the bless your heart look and others say okay and move on. Where are the in-between people? How do you feel after writing these things down like I need a drink? Thank you so much for for sharing that stuff. Oh. 
Sometimes I just don't know what to say when I read these because I don't want to be redundant, but I just want to send send you guys love and good vibes and a digital hug. This is from the love survey filled out by Blank Men. And they write, sitting on my balcony in the evening as the sun goes down, listening to calming ambient music and reading. When I have a day off and I lay down in bed the night before, thinking consciously about not having to set an alarm as I drift off. That's a great one. I love this one. Buying a new board game and opening the box for the first time. Punching out tokens, browsing through cards, and organizing the pieces makes me feel content every time and makes me excited to show it to and play it with friends. Thank you for those. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey filled out by Aaron, who identifies as non-binary. They uh, identify as bisexual. Uh, They are 18 and were raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. They were the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was the, quote, victim of multiple statutory rapes when I was 16 and 17 with guys ranging from 21 to 35. I've struggled with being able to say no. Recently, someone I was close to had sex with me after I said I didn't want to do anything sexual that day. I got really drunk and he had sex with me again. He was so funny and sweet. They've been physically and emotionally abused. My dad doesn't have emotions. I like to call him a robot. He doesn't do anything but work, work, work. When I was young, he used to shake me and scream in my face when I did something wrong. He would grab my arms so hard and just yell. I would tell him he was hurting me, but he said I was just too sensitive. By the way, when people tell you that you're too sensitive or you're being dramatic, that's really the version of them saying that they don't know how to handle emotions, that you're you're out of my league emotionally in terms of communicating. Um, We don't really talk. My mom was extremely overbearing and had no boundaries. She changed with the door open and sometimes in the laundry room outside my door. She talked about the mole on my labia and named him Freckle Friend. It is so creepy. She offered to buy me dildos and lingerie. By the way, the, the, these constitute sexual abuse. You know, a parent or a caretaker or a person doesn't have to touch you to be violating you and make you feel unsafe. You know, a kid being raised in a home where there is no escape is, uh, and especially if they're being told that they're being dramatic or, you know, their feelings about things are, are just being totally ignored. Um, and what your mom is, is doing uh, is referred to as uh, emotional incest. She would go to my psychiatrist's meetings and talk about herself and her opinions. When they would ask me why I was there, I would just let her answer. She was never really my mom, just an older sister or a friend. She mostly just ignored me. I lived with my 20-year-old, 23-year-old boyfriend for a few months, and after I broke up with him and went back home, I realized her faults. She's either way too happy to talk to me or pretends I'm not there. 
When I didn't do dishes, she would send me a picture of them and a paragraph of how bad of a kid I am. She would tell me that I can wallow in my own filth, but I shouldn't subject other people to that. For Halloween, I decided to have a party. I finally cleaned my room for the first time in years, but she didn't notice. She called me out in front of all my friends for not hanging out with my autistic sister. She said, when I'm old and sick, all my friends will be gone and my sister won't love me enough to take care of me. I sobbed in front of all of them. She still gives me constant unsolicited advice. I don't know why. I don't know if it's okay that I'm distancing myself from her. I really don't. Yes, it is awesome that you are distancing yourself from her. She is a very sick person and I'm sure she had a brutal upbringing. You know, I don't think people are born the way that, that she is, but that is not your burden to to carry. Um, I just know I hate talking to her. I can barely look her in the eyes. When she enters the room, I immediately feel tense. Sometimes I catch myself laughing at her jokes and I hate myself. I think of how she loves us and wants the best for us, and I feel so guilty for almost completely avoiding her. I know she hates my having a car because I leave all the time without telling her where I'm going or when I'll be back. I know it terrifies her because she told me I'm taking advantage of her biggest fear. I imagine her alone at home crying over me and I feel so awful. But I know since I've created this distance, I've gotten my license, drove into town, went on an interview, got a job, and decided to get sober and handle my sex addiction doesn't change how bad I feel about cutting her out of my life before even moving out. It will get easier. It gets easier. You know, as many of you know, I had to make the painful decision to cut my mom out of my life uh, about eight years ago. And uh, the toughest thing I ever did, but it was the most, uh, I don't know, self-loving thing I ever did. But boy, it's hard. Especially when your relationship with them is mixed, when there were good moments. And I don't know, maybe there weren't good moments with your mom, but um, even the sickest of parents, uh, sometimes there are still moments that we cling to to tell ourselves that it wasn't that bad. Darkest thoughts. I think about pedophilia a lot. I don't know why. I've never had sexual relations with a child, but sometimes I see kids and just think about pedophilia. I ask myself, would someone be sexually attracted to that 13-year-old? Do you think they talk to older men and their parents don't know? Darkest secrets. I still hurt myself fairly regularly. I think about cutting again, but I don't have any razors. I just scratch and hit and pull hair when I think of all the stupid shit I've said and done. What if... When you think about the, quote, stupid shit you've done, you just think of yourself as your best friend and how you would react to them. Would you, would you pull their hair? Would you scratch them and hit them? Or would you say, man, it's time to forgive yourself. You're, you're, a, you're a sweet soul. Sexual fantasies, uh, most powerful to you. Uh, I have rape fantasies. I think about being too drunk to move, being forced, and being asleep. I feel like a disgusting human being. You are not as a disgusting human being. Those are not uncommon uh, fantasies, and uh, 
We say many times on the podcast, our sexual fantasies have nothing to do with our morality. They're often our brain's way of dealing with an anxiety about that very subject matter. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Why the fuck don't you talk to me about anything important? Mom, instead of telling me what to do or say or what places are hiring, ask me why I don't clean my room and where I go at night. Ask me why I don't talk to you. You know, honestly, I think because your mom is not interested. I think your mom is so self-involved and in, probably in such survival mode emotionally because she probably feels so empty that she she just either chooses not to or is incapable of putting herself in other people's shoes. Just my two cents. Have you shared these things with others? I talk to people about my issues, but it doesn't seem like anyone really gets it, at least no one I know in real life. How do you feel? I, th- I think a support group would be a fantastic place for you because there are a lot of people that have these issues and um, finding that camaraderie it's it is so healing and life-changing it has been for me how do you feel after writing these things down i feel lost but it's all right Uh, i'm sending you sending you a care package sending you some some love and good vibes and speaking of loves, this is filled out by from the love survey, filled out by Growar. And they write, I love when someone uses my name during our conversation. That's such a great, simple one. The only exception I would add is when salespeople overuse your name. Paul, have you ever thought about your, your future and the, maybe the policy to take care of those you, you leave behind? Paul, I want to want to tell you something. This is another shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Tree with Sap. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. He says he was raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, he writes, I was very lucky to have wonderful parents. They did have about two years when they separated due to infidelities or whatever they or why ever they did it, which was a very lonely time for me. But this aside, it was a stable upbringing, and they are probably the people I'm closest to in the world. He's never been sexually abused. He's been emotionally abused, he writes. Not sure if this counts, and I think it's pretty common, but I was fat in middle school and was teased and called names nearly every day. I would go into school hoping today no one would make fun of me. Looking back, it feels like my peers were abusive towards me. I I would say, yeah, and it's when I started becoming a very angry, self-hating person. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I guess as I've aged with my peer group, I've mostly felt they don't like me, but a couple were okay, and one friend was a positive presence in my life. My feelings towards this friend are complicated, and then I was very close to him for a while, and we had a very... We had a very empathetic friendships. I think there's a typo in there. But he was more attractive than I and had beautiful, interesting girlfriends and was able to be a regular person in ways that I'm not. So basically, my jealous feelings towards his looks and abilities ruined my ability to feel like his equal in any way. Darkest thoughts. 
Because I was chubby as a kid, I grew to be so jealous or envious, I still can't remember the distinction, of boys with the thin body I've always wanted. Though time has passed, I will still see a teenage boy, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, at the beach or on TV or wherever, with the torso I always wished I had had, and will have sexual fantasies about tying them down, jerking them off, watching them give in to the pleasure I'm causing them seeing them look weak and helpless. I think back to male friends of mine from middle school through college and seeing them naked and vulnerable, engaging them either in erotic massage or sexual torment. Darkest secrets. I've gotten some massages that ended with hand jobs. I'm still a virgin. I hate myself for this. I feel I've wasted my youth, and instead of having beautiful, meaningful, erotic, or deep connections with young, attractive women, I've been alone. I just don't have the qualities girls go for. I wouldn't tell yourself that, you know? I I would not tell yourself that because it it's that that kills your spirit and our spirit is often what a potential mate is looking at and attracted to. And I don't know, you know, how to how to raise your spirit but Telling yourself that you don't have the qualities a potential partner is interested in is, for one, just not true. Because I believe everybody has some type of something in them, a light, whatever you want to call it, that is helpful, useful, connective to to other human beings. And it's the just the process of covering, uncovering the shit that is muting that, that is our struggle. Um, I don't have a competitive spirit and there's always a more attractive guy around, so why would a girl be with me? You know, it's, it, it's and especially as you get older, it's, it's not a competition for the best looking people. Is as people get older and I think more emotionally educated, they find out what they like and don't like. I know a lot of women and men who will look at somebody who on the surface may be physically attractive, but there's no depth there and and they don't have interest in that person. And what they do have interest in is a person who's communicative, who is sensitive, um, who doesn't take themselves too seriously, uh, who's a good listener. Um, though, just throwing that out there. I've never told anyone I'm a virgin, but it's possible friends of mine, having, having never seen me with a significant other, might infer it. My attempts at being with women, maybe a half a dozen hookups, have always been anxiety provoking experiences because I don't know mechanically what to do when I'm with a woman and I feel rather than pleasure pressure to perform I feel I'm too old to be this sexually inexperienced and to admit this to a girl would be a turnoff for them because they want a confident guy Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you I have rape fantasies with women, scenes where their panties are pulled off as they're screaming no. Any weird ritualistic scene where a girl is tied down like in Rosemary's Baby turns me on. 
I'm attracted to pregnant women sometimes, possibly the vulnerability. I fantasize about the adolescent boys I mentioned before, feeling their hairless chests and watching their ab muscles tighten right before they come. Any coming-of-age story where a young boy and girl discover sex in each other for the first time. I used to like going on Facebook to see pictures of female friends of mine at the beach in bikinis. I think back to the few sexual experiences I've had in real life and picture how it might have gone if it had gone better. Her totally naked on the bed with their ass exposed. Then I spread her cheeks and start fucking her. Sharing this makes me feel neutral. I'd never want anyone to know I've written these things, though. I'd love to have a relationship with a girl, but I don't want one with men and would not want to do anything to someone underage. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? There are girls I sometimes would like to show interest in, generally just seeing them looking attractive, walking down the street or something, but that's a dumb reason to approach a person. Asking a girl to go out doesn't go well for me, and I'm just too awkward. What, if anything, do you wish for? Deep connections with people, whether it's another male friend I just feel a simpatico and sense of humor with, or a girl I feel like entering into a long-term relationship with. I feel like connecting with another person on a non-superficial, deep, empathetic level where there's potential for unconditional love and trust is a really important but too hard-to-find part of life. You know, I heard somebody say one time in a meeting, become the person that you're looking for. And uh, I would agree very much with that. So, you know, while you're quote-unquote waiting for that person in your life to show up work on becoming that person that 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 you're looking for because that gives off a vibe that is very attractive to a lot of people have you shared these things with others no never shared it's too embarrassing the adolescent male eroticism i can't really wrap my head around i have a friend who's uh, straight and he has the the same fantasy so I imagine a lot of other men have that as as well, and women. Uh, I don't think sex with men is my thing, but it's a part of my dark fantasies. It's always flavored with the jealousy I spoke of earlier. I just don't think there's any benefit in others knowing I've had these thoughts. I have all kinds of thoughts that I don't intend to act upon. I don't see what pragmatic use this information would have for some other person in the world. Well, I think if it's a safe person... I think there is benefit uh, in them knowing our inner life because it helps them feel less alone and might make it easier for them to share stuff. And uh, I think it normalizes the fact that a lot of us have a, you know, side to ourselves that that we shame ourselves for, that, um Yeah. How do you feel after writing these things down? Kind of neutral. Not sure what the point of my doing this was. I guess to help out your podcast, since I think what you're doing is worthwhile. Well, thank you. That that means a lot to me. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Just that dumb, stupid people who love sports and terrible modern music and all the other BS in life have it. Uh, have an easy time finding each other because society feeds and supports their mainstream interests. And for people like us, it's pretty much a lonely ride. Well, I'm just going to say what I said about the other stuff is keep your mind open and just uh, 
keep uh, keep working on yourself for for yourself. This is from the Loves survey filled out by a person who calls themselves Fortitudinous Survivor. I love living alone. I love waking up by myself every morning, opening my eyes, seeing no one, hearing the sounds of the apartment. I love that my stuff is where I left it. I love listening to podcasts. I imagine the podcaster talking to me directly. I love doing my own things. I love making my own decisions. I love wearing whatever I want. I love the freedom. I love making meals. I love making money for me alone, and it's mine. I love the freedoms that come with living alone. The pandemic has made me love living alone even more. Less cleaning and trusting. Thank you for those. I do love I do love living alone. I think a lot of people after, you know, I was married for 20 plus years and um, there, it, it just felt obviously so different when we split and I lived on my own for the first time in my life without a roommate or a partner. It was scary, but also really, really liberating. And um, I get, I get you. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves robot with human hair. And they write, I love watching two blue jays politely taking turns eating from the bird feeder that hangs from the tree in my backyard. Oh, that's a, that is a great one. And you know, I was going to read this, this heavy, super heavy survey, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of burned out on, on the heavy, so I'm going to end with this happy moment filled out by Andrina. I hope your na- name is not pronounced Andrina because that means middle school sucked for you. She writes, I was doing my high school's musical and we were milling around between the end of the matinee and the beginning of the evening show. I had done musicals all through school, and this would have been the last one I ever got to do. This was also the first one where I played a more leading role. It had outlandish makeup and a very pretty costume, so I was already on a high. Between the matinee and evening show is always a strange liminal space. Everyone is sitting in the ensemble dressing room, half-dressed and trying to eat a sad excuse of a dinner while not wrecking their stage makeup. Plus, you get a bit silly from being tired from the performance you just did. Someone was playing music from a speaker, popular music that everyone knew, and Sweet Caroline started playing. Everyone got into singing it because what else What else are a bunch of white, working-class, bogan children going to do? I looked up bogan, and it's an Australian term for people who are um, badly dressed, I think uh, kind of clueless. I don't know, maybe I'm mischaracterizing it. And I remember having a momentary out-of-body experience. I didn't like school, but I wanted the moment to last forever. Everyone united after busting our asses for months, bringing this thing together. Sad that it was going to be all over so soon, but proud of what we'd achieved. We had all become friends through the process, and the chorus of our voices only served as a reminder of that fact making eye contact with people who you got to know so well in such a short amount of time, and only seeing joy warms your heart so much. 
I haven't done anything musical theatery since I graduated, but I still replay that moment in my mind. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I had, I was a theater major in, in college, and I remember loving the, the, everybody together in the, in the dressing room. And there was an album that was popular back then. It was, uh, a, Talking Heads album called, I think it was called Tiny Creatures. Is that right? But every time I hear one of the songs from that, it just takes me right back to the dressing room. Just all the gags we would play on each other. And the, oh, it was just, it was so fun. One of my favorite things was this guy named Larry. Uh, we, we had a scene together and he would do this thing where he would breathe too much out his nose when he would talk to make me laugh and he would do it in the middle of the play <laughs> and it was so hard to not break up <laughs> when he would when he would do that oh i miss that stuff well i hope you guys got something out of this episode um whether it was the interview the surveys or all of it and uh i hope you're coping with the pandemic okay because man it's it is getting groundhog day it is just groundhog day and uh i hope you're being kind to yourself and um i hope you're finding something that helps you feel or just distract yourself i suggest Civ five just a thought Anyway, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.